thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. Hey, welcome back, everyone. This is the Fighter Pilot Podcast, episode 75. I'm your host, Jello. Today, we conclude with part two of our F-15 Eagle episode as we continue F-15 month. And returning as co-host is Major Mike Walsh. BS, thanks for coming back to help out explain the mighty Eagle. Thanks for bringing me back, Jello. All right. How's your Southern California tour going? Uh, it's good to be back. Oh, it's great. I might not leave, actually. <laughs> well, the unit might miss you. <laughs> All right. Well, as a quick reminder for the listener, you spent about 14 years in the Marine Corps flying the F-A-18 Hornet for about 13, 1,400 hours before transitioning to an Air National Guard unit, and you now have about 150 hours flying the C-model of the F-15 Eagle. Does that all sound about right? That's right, yep. Cool. Well, tell you what, why don't we let Spidey and Stretch finish up, and then you and I will pick back up after. Awesome. How about the flying itself? I mean, I read that uh, pilots were involved with the design of the cockpit and the hotas and ergonomics and all that. Was it easy to fly? Was there some parts of it that you wish they had designed differently? I mean, sounds like it's got pretty good it's cockpit a visibility. Cub of fighters. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. Awesome. <laughs> it's the muscle car that everybody wants to fly with yeah. the uh, vertigate shifter. If you're a muscle car f- fanatic about, it really has everything designed so well. Uh, the hands-on operation, so mm-hmm. th- those gamers out there who like their video games, well, our throttle, two throttles, two engines, so a throttle per each. The throttle has four switches just for your thumb, and then one for each of your fingers, and then just to add some fun, an extra one on the left. So literally just on the, thro- the, mm-hmm. just on the throttles alone, there are nine switches. And then on the stick you've got another seven switches. So there's 16 switches available to your fingers alone. The reason is because you can be pulling eight and a half, nine Gs, not have to lift your hands off the stick and throttles to do what you need to do to finish your gaming job. It's the same kind of act. You're playing video games on the the radar screen and you're moving a mouse around and you're locking targets. It's very similar to gaming. Except the price of losing. Correct. (laughs) multiple functions on each of those switches. So as an example, not to get into the details, but one of those thumb switches on the stick mm-hmm. does 34 different functions. What? Takes a lot of training. So yeah. training, training, training. But the awesome part of that is it was ergonomically designed to be able to fly at altitudes, under right. G, at any capability, and you don't have to look down to do anything. Right. You can do it all with your fingers. It's amazing. But to your point, it requires you to remember what switch does what and to train to that because in the heat of the fight, you can forget. And it takes repetition, I would Absolutely. say. Habit patterns, and building mm-hmm. habit patterns from the beginning and training is stressed highly. Mm-hmm. And I still have some of the same habit patterns that I had from when I flew the Eagle. Uh, and it still shows up today when I jump in one of the, one of my airplanes, either the A4 or the 159, yeah. I'll move the switches and I go, oh, that doesn't work. That's the Eagle. And I'm like, oh, practice, practice. that HOTAS the, uh, matters. Yeah. And, it, and the HOTAS and the Eagle, yeah. I'll be honest with you, 
having flown multiple different airplanes now, it's probably one of the best Mac airplanes around. Nice. It's incredible. So we sit in the simulator a lot. Uh-huh. Uh, we call it hitting a bucket of balls. So just uh, like practicing sure, golf, sure. just practice, practice. Okay. Well, and that's, I mean, anyone who wants to excel in their craft, that's what it takes. If you're a piano player, it's the same thing. You got to know what each finger is doing. All right, cool. Let's talk strengths and weaknesses for the strengths. What was like your favorite thing about the Eagle? Let's just call it that. It's just fun. Yeah. It's well, just fun. That's true in any fighter. So the argue. strength of this <laughs> is just the, the power and maneuverability. So yeah. what's incredible is, so I also fly on the civilian side, uh, pit special. Oh. So the pits is a yeah. biplane, fully aerobatic, spins, loops, all that stuff. Oh, yeah. What's incredible is the F-15 can fly like a pit special. It can do aerobatics. It can do tight turns. It can very precise mm. uh, rollouts. It can do high G. It can do dogfights like no other plane other than the F-22. <laughs> it really is the best dogfighter in the planet. It's incredible. It can go fast. The power plants on the engines are incredible and super reliable, as we talked about with the digital advance to them. Mm -hmm. So a lot of power. The nice part is... I've been on multiple missions where I go from 500 feet or lower over the mountains to survive against a missile being shot at me. A minute later, I'm at about 38,000 feet shooting high range, long range missiles. Yeah. And you can go high, you can go low. It has great detection capability with his radar. Like I said, the plane was designed around the radar. Right. So you can find people easily, other aircraft easily. You can defend yourself. It's just an amazing platform. It really is the best surfboard on the ocean. It's incredible. <laughs> it's, it really flies like a surfboard. Yeah, you're I flying can't top the surfboard. <laughs> it's you're flying like a surfboard, and you're turning from the peak to the valley, and it's just incredible how you can just literally wear this like a yeah. like a snowshoe. It's crazy. How about you, Stretch? What's your favorite I, thing about it? I love everything about the Eagle. All right, I think that air combat maneuvering. And short-range radar, as far as tactical employment, was my favorite. Because you could turn what was a defensive situation into an offensive situation in a heartbeat. You might be defensive one second, and then two seconds later, your element is offensive. I just thought that was the coolest yeah. thing about the Eagle. I thought the advanced handling characteristics of the airplane, when I said it's the Piper Cub of fighters, you can fly this airplane and it... It does what you expect it to do. It mm -hmm. doesn't do anything unpredictable. Well, and yeah, for people who aren't familiar with Piper Cubs, I mean, there are pilots in Alaska putting these things down on gravel bars and rivers and crazy things. And so it's an easy flying yeah. airplane. Yeah. It's easy to fly, but I think tactically it requires significant skill mm. to fly the airplane. Yeah. It's forgiving. Yes. Forgiving is a great word. Would you call it reliable too? 100%. Yeah, absolutely. Extremely reliable. Both to you and to the folks on the ground when you land. and So anchor. reliable. It's incredible. Okay. So I don't know exact numbers, but I think it's like 3,300 sorties I've had in F-15. And I've landed every single time. It's reliable. What I love about the F-15 is the redundancy of how it was designed. So mm -hmm. triple redundant uh, hydraulics. Right. Obviously two engines. I can lose, lose an engine not worry about it. I can lose half the the wing surface on one side and it's proven twice and two cases where the wing was ripped off 
There's pictures of that. That's in crazy. the aircraft. Go, well, if we lose a wing, we'll just come back and land. We'll just come back and land. So it's got a cross hydraulic control uh-huh. to at least have one surface with the stabilator, which is the most impressive part of the F-15. Mm-hmm. The stabilator, because it's not just a elevator system; it's the whole tail moves. And so, with the cross control of the hydraulics backup system, you can fly with just one stabilator on one side and no wing. <laughs> So that's pretty impressive. And flight tested. It was designed for combat. It can take the heat and it still comes back. It's reliable. It's safe. It's incredible. The other thing I I enjoyed about it was the emergency procedure for engine failure on takeoff. Throttle as required, climb to safe altitude and investigate. (laughs) I think that explains it all right Do I even need to be told that? Oh, oh, by the way, the the other thing I'll say is there are no boldface items. That's right. I always heard that. And the Dash 1, the emergency procedure pages, I believe, are about 34, 35 pages. At one time, I knew every single word in that document. Not that I had to apply it very often, but I knew every single word about that. It's extremely reliable. And if something goes wrong in the Eagle, you know it's going to take care of it. So you said the downside, the only complaint is there are not, there are not enough missiles because <laughs> there's only eight. And here's the fix. The F-15EX or yeah. X is X, supposed yeah. to have double that yeah. at least. So we like that. <laughs> Missile truck. So I have to tell you a quick story and I don't mean to make it sound bad for the F-15, but Claw Wang or Wang. I, and Portland, wait, yeah. he was one of my students. Was he? Okay. So what? A couple, two kills, I think, in Allied yes. Force. I was the MIG killer debrief coordinator when I was at Top Gun as an instructor. Oh, outstanding. I, yeah, we always had to find people who had good stories. And so he flies down from Portland to tell us a story in the afternoon. He's going to fly back that night. Doesn't pack a thing. Guy, you know, we've got front row parking oh, at Fallon. Oh. He pulls up, you hear the engine shut down, and poof, big old red mist and giant puddles dumping oh. out. He oh. gets out, he climbs down, he My looks, goodness. he's like, crap. <laughs> poor guy this was a friday he didn't leave until wednesday (laughs) so i took him over to the exchange and bought him like a pair of underwear and a toothbrush and you know he's like what's there to do in fallon i said not much so we had him over for dinner and poor guy you know he came down to tell a story for an hour or two and ends up spending four days but you know it's just one of those things every oh yeah for sure every airplane is going to have days like that and uh i forget what it was but it sat there for a long time and i think he was a little bit embarrassed but you know it happens the nice thing is it happened on the ground. Yeah, well, that's true. That's true. Otherwise, you might have turned around and went back right. and uh, not told us the story. All right. So we talked about the strengths. Was there ever one thing about the F-15 that you thought, dang it, why don't they just fix this? Whether it was the pocketbook wasn't deep enough, uh, bad example, pockets weren't deep enough, or for whatever reason, politics, something else. Was there anything that was like a thorn for you guys in the F-15? Well, what I said before is just the missile load, so they're fixing that. <laughs> the plane is uh, is actually incredible in how it's kept up with technology, yeah. with, uh, like we talked about, the phase array radars mm-hmm. and uh, the AMRAM capabilities with uh, the launch and leave ability, the 9X, uh, with the sideways, basically shooting heat-seeking missiles with the helmet-mounted sight, all amazing, amazing, amazing. It's always interesting. The downside, I guess, my, my biggest complaint, I guess, is the Air Force started mentally phasing out of the F-15 when the F-22 came on board. Right. But as Stretch eloquently uh, uh, established in his uh, F-22 documentary, that we only bought a 181-ish of F-22s when it's supposed to be 750. So we're kind of in this no-man's land where the F-15 could have 
still can be further upgraded to include a lot of the structural issues because they're so old, they weren't expecting to be flying this long. And so our term is the longeron. There are many I-beams that basically four I-beams in the whole uh, nose to tail of the aircraft that hold it together. Mm -hmm. Well, those have been through so many years of high G maneuvers, it's the paperclip thing and they're getting weak. And so a lot of money could have been spent in replacing things like that. Uh, putting new wings on, putting new missile stations on for uh, for more missiles, MVG compatible for night vision goggles. A lot of things we could have put money into that uh, we decided not to because we thought we were phasing them out, mm-hmm. which is still in the question, but there is no replacement for them at the point. So right. we need to keep them on for a long time. I think that's been acknowledged. So that's kind of the complaint of kind of the in-between land uh, uh, politically and financially of where do we spend our money? Uh, F-35s, F-22s, et cetera, uh, very, very important, but we still have a mission to do yeah. air defense, and the F-15 is doing that, uh, as Stretch already said, for mm-hmm. Homeland Defense. So uh, some more cash uh, just to keep it up to speed and flyable. But the F-15, right, is not actual Air Force anymore? It's like, what, National Guards? No, and... it's absolutely Air Force. So it's majority Air National Guards. So okay, there are three, that's what I meant, though. There are three... Uh, combat squadrons in the active duty. Okay. Uh, two Kadena uh, in Japan and one in oh, okay. uh, Lake Neath, England. And then the Air Force active is still responsible for the weapons school and right. the test. Uh, it's a combined effort for uh, the flight instruction uh, for upgrades. So it's actually a combined uh, active and guard up in Klamath Falls, uh, yeah. Oregon. So mm-hmm. the majority rests with the National Guard because there are all the guard sites, as Stretch mentioned, uh, there are holding down the homeland defense, uh, mm-hmm. the four corners, we call it. So uh, southeast, northwest, and southwest. southwest. Thank you. <laughs> One of these directions. <laughs> so they are pulling the homeland defense, but that's the National Guard doing yeah. that. Okay. But it's a combined effort. It's still absolutely uh, a combined All effort. All right. Fair enough. Now, I almost... I'm ashamed to ask this one because the F-15 is just, I mean, it doesn't need to ask this, but notoriety. Where have people seen it? Maybe in movies, if at all. Uh, It doesn't have its own top gun that I can tell, like the F-14, but it's got a rather impressive historical kill ratio. You know, where else would this thing have earned its, not earned its chops, but where would the listener have seen it, maybe? Well, Hollywood did not get the Air Force vote to join the Hollywood scene. So that's why Top Gun came out and the Air Force said, well, we probably should have done something like that. It's great for recruiting. Uh, So we did not do anything like that with the Mm -hmm. Air Force. So there are very few stories. There's a very weak movie that I want to even mention that had that 15 in it that's uh, awful. But it's not about the movies. It's about the history. (laughs) So so the F-15, since it's been out uh, in the uh, mid-70s, literally has the best air-to-air kill ratio in history. So the first aircraft that flew air-to-air was World War I, over 100 years yeah, ago. Yeah, that's right. World War II, Korean War, Vietnam, Desert Storm. There is no other aircraft that has this record. So the F-15 Eagle has a record of 104 enemies shot down, zero losses. Wow. There are other aircraft that are very sexy, like the P-51. Awesome, amazing amazing what B-51 did and what their kill ratio was in World War II. But the F-15 was designed to do what it does and it does it very well. So zero losses from enemy fire, which is unbelievable, right? That's impressive. 104 to zero. Is that around the world as far as 
Israeli? That's another? correct. Yeah, that okay. includes Israeli uh, numbers, absolutely. Okay. So Saudi numbers as well. Yep. There's, There's two, numbers. two Saudi kills in there. Yep. Is that right? Wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, movies. Uh, I did a little research. Oh, Tomorrow Never Air Force dies. One. Was it in Air Force One? They were escorting oh, yeah. Air Force One. Right. Fair enough. Okay. It was really good. It was the 59th Fighter Squadron that did the filming for that. Is that right? Excellent. Yeah. The Proud Lions. Cool. All right, guys. We're just about uh, done here. Although, I, as I always say, we could go on and on, I'm sure. But uh, how about a good story? So, Spidey, you and I were talking about this on the drive over. You've got several. Uh, what do you want to share with us today? I think one that be well-designed just to kind of illustrate the F-15 is uh, in Desert Storm, and I'm just a young kid. I had uh, been a year out of uh, training from wow. learning how to fly the F-15, and okay. now I'm in combat. Mm-hmm. And so it was interesting, and it kind of combines the story I mentioned already about the F-15 was designed to be the Air Force infantry. Those are my terms. No one's told me that in the past, but mm-hmm. infantry is out in front on the ground. Those are the, the guys willing and able to go hand-to-hand combat. And that's mm-hmm. kind of what we're set up to do. So in Desert Storm, uh, my squadron from Bitburg, Germany, the, the 525 Bulldogs, uh, which now has transitioned to F-22 up in Alaska. But back then <laughs> in the 90s, so this is 1990 December, is when we deployed to Inchilik, Turkey. Uh, Inchilik, Turkey is north of Iraq. We were told we were there just for defense of the base of Inchilik, Turkey, and we will not participate in the air combat in Iraq because the Turks won't allow that. Break, break, the 117s that we talked about knocked down the door for Desert Storm, Mm -hmm. and that is December 17th, 1991. Right. We, in Inshalik, Turkey, in the F-15s, we get a bang on the door an hour after that, saying, the war is on, you need to go to the jet, you are on alert now. (laughs) So we go to the F-15s, we sit on alert in a makeshift tent with a makeshift generator because it's cold in Turkey in January <laughs> and we're getting fumigated. We get, we get, we do. And uh, we have a little radio set up and uh, sure enough, about an hour later to go, scramble, scramble, a war on. We need you to participate. So we run out to the aircraft, start them up and we launch in the middle of the night on the first night of Desert Storm. And we'll just make it up when we get up there? We'll make it up when we get there. So wow. we have no plan. We're told we're not participating. <laughs> and by the way, we talked earlier about the capabilities of the F-15 and what we carry weapon-wise. Mm-hmm. At the time, we only had AIM-9 mics, and that's it. No we, Sparrow even? We had no Sparrow even, <laughs> because the Turks said that's <laughs> an offensive weapon. Oh, for So we had AIM-9 mics. So we launched at night with a two-ship F-15s with an unknown mission against at the time, the fifth largest air force in the world, that was Iraq. They had the fourth largest army in the world, Mm -hmm. that was Iraq. And we launched at night with two AIM-9s, thinking (laughs) this is the last day of my life. (laughs) Uh, Break, break, two days later, we survived that night, obviously. Two days later, we actually launch what we, in the Air Force, practice routinely, and that's a red flag mission with about 40 plus aircraft, all intermix of every type from early warning to air refueling to uh, electronic uh, warfare to air-to-ground surface uh, combat to uh, sea the, against the SAM to the cache. To the... Anyway, we launched two days after Desert Storm has started 40-plus aircraft from Inchilic, Turkey. And this is where the story begins of how the F-15 was designed as the infantry. We put 12 F-15s in a wall, we call it, we're about two miles space between each F-15. So space out 12 eagles. 
And we are the first ones to cross into Iraq because our job is air-to-air and air dominance to make sure there are no enemy aircraft that will attack any friendly aircraft. So we have 40-plus aircraft behind us. Our 12 ship is out front with our AIM-7 Sparrows. And behind us, we have the SAM shooters. Back then, they were the F-4 Wild Weasels. Mm -hmm. Eight of those. So super impressive. And we're up in the in the cons, the contrails. So you can see 12 F-15s. And we said, we don't care if you see us. We hope you do. <laughs> Come on. Because then you won't even take off. <laughs> so we got a couple of takeoff. We had AAA firing at us. Mm-hmm. And it was literally like the World War II scenes. Wow. When the old videos where you see the black smoke clouds going off right in your formation, above your formation, wow. below your formation, the flak. The Iraqis were shooting high caliber uh, AAA at us. We had uh, surface-to-air missiles shot at us, so uh, one in the formation had a SA-3 shot at him. I had a uh, Roland, which is interesting, a uh, French-built surface-to-air missile uh-huh. sold to the Iraqis, <laughs> uh, shot of the U.S., so there you go. So thank you to the French. So the uh, Iraqi shot a Roland to me, and I'm fine in a F-15 with three external tanks, so it's a lot of extra weight. Oh, yeah. We just came off the uh, tankers. So we just filled up with gas just north of the Iraqi border in Turkey. So pretty heavyweight. Uh, I've got eight missiles, so the four uh, sparrows, nine mics, uh, and then the three tanks. So I'm about 26,000 feet when the missile shot at me. Look down, see it fired, roll the jet towards the missile, and just trying to maneuver so I'm not where it thinks I'm going to be when it gets to uh, my altitude. Since I'm such a young cat... I don't think about, hey, I'm really heavyweight. All these three tanks that I'm holding have 4,000 pounds of fuel in each one of them. Wow. I need to get rid of them. I don't think about that. (laughs) So basically, very quickly, I go from 26,000 feet to about 19,000 feet. I'm slow now, about uh, below 300 knots, because I pulled all all the speed off the jet trying to avoid this missile, which I do. But now I'm totally in the thick of the AAA. There are bullets going everywhere. And finally I go, I need to get out of here. I go straight line, stop turning, full afterburner, and just get out and go north to get back into Turkey Mm -hmm. while the 40-ship package goes right over me. And they go do their mission striking. (laughs) And I go, where do I go next? Nice Uh, job decoying for them, by the way. (laughs) So I eventually punch the tanks to be able to climb. And I climb out. And I go afterburner and go, where do I go next? I'm not sure. And I finally make it back to Inchilic with minimum fuel, wondering if I'm going to land. So it was a a hairy experience. Did they know you had left on your own? I mean, not really, but uh, did they know you were okay? You were a wingman? They they... didn't know I'm okay. They just heard that I'm defending. And they said, okay, (laughs) you're on your own. We're not going to stop. They're on a train. Yeah, oh yeah. 40 aircraft going one direction. So they kept going and I, I went the other way. That's crazy. I can't imagine what the radio must have sounded like on that. It was pretty nuts, especially with the F-15s. We detected two aircraft. The F-4s are carrying the same weapons we are, Mm -hmm. even though they're uh, the SAM mission, the surface-to-air or uh, SEED, uh, going against the SAMs. Uh, They also have AIM-7s. We have AIM-7s. We have two aircraft coming towards us, and everyone's talking about those aircraft and who can shoot them first. Of course. Turns out they're friendlies, by the way, uh, so no one shot. Great. One of the F-15s identified that. Uh, but the radios were crazy. And so really all I could get in is, hey, defending, Roland, 
And everybody said, uh, hey, hope you hope the best for you. <laughs> yes. There's nothing really they can do anyway right. at that sure. point. They were just finishing their mission uh, into Kirkuk, uh, into northern Iraq at that point. So if you can't imagine uh, heart beating, adrenaline pumping, yeah. uh, that was that day. So speaking of that, and if we can't talk too much in depth about this, that's fine. But most fighters in the 70s and 80s were really dependent on someone else to help them identify other aircraft. I remember when the F-15 came along, you guys would never talk about it. Like we would ever meet up at Northern Edge or something else, you know, it's like, I ah, don't worry about it. You always seem to have the ability to, and you just alluded to it, Spidey, is kind of figure out that those guys were friendlies. And we had that luxury. That's exactly right. And that's okay. one of the designs of the plane yeah. where that dish for the radar was designed is, hey, can that help us identify planes? And so without the details of how that happens, yeah. uh, that was a fact. We were able to identify aircraft, which prevented us from shooting friendlies, number one, mm-hmm. but also from finding out where the actual enemies right. are to take them out before they take us out. I got a great story about that in Desert Storm. So Logger Rose, okay. uh, Dave Rose, oh, okay. Logger is his call okay. sign. Right. And I was in his squadron. He was uh, in the 60th with me, and then he flew with the 58th Fighter Squadron out of Tabuk in Desert Storm. I watched his tape of when he got his MiG kill. So he and Coppertone are running on these uh, two uh, MiG-23s. There's a North AWACS, there's an East AWACS, and there's a West AWACS, and they're on the East AWACS. Okay. And so that East AWACS is telling them, hey, there's a group here, you know, north of them about 20 miles, and it's hostile. Logger, with his identification capability in the F-15, goes, hey, I don't think they're hostile. Let's VID them. That was the visually great, identified. We're going to visually mm-hmm. identify them. It was the greatest call in the world because of what's going to transpire. So they run this intercept, and he and Coppertone roll out behind these two MiG 23s. And no kidding, they're in formation with two Bitburg F 15s that have rolled in on the same two ship. So the SA from Logger to go, hey, don't shoot. We're going to. VID these airplanes and they both VID'd them and got a kill out of that oh, out of that engagement. And so crazy. to one essay on logger being, mm-hmm. you know, hey man, I, I need to make sure this idea is solved correctly. And two, the capability of the F-15 prevented a possible fratricide right yeah. there because those dudes were seeing the uh, Bitburg Eagles on their radar. Wow. Well, what's great is I was on frequency because I just left that cap. <laughs> so I literally was on frequency and the, the two ship of Bitburg uh, Eagles that replaced us had just gotten on station when they get the launch of the, of the MiGs. And so I tell that story to every class weapons school on you don't know what you don't know. Whenever you think you have perfect awareness, the answer is you already have lost awareness because mm-hmm. you never have perfect awareness. And that's a prime example yeah. is what to do, what not to do. The guys in the North did some things that they could have had a better intercept and had the kills prior against the MiGs. However, they were totally unaware of uh, logger because off their side, off the their left nine o'clock. But logger did have the awareness from the ID capability. Go friendly, friendly. We got friendlies in the environment. Friendlies in there. Let's, yeah. uh, let's visually in identify there, right. uh, before we shoot, yeah. and they did just that. So class, very world class act. That's a prime example and a good uh, kind of summary of the F fifteen. It's mm-hmm. not just the capability of the aircraft; it's the capability of the cadre. Oh sure. So our yeah. cadre is so disciplined from day one mm-hmm. that it comes to situations like that, yeah. the fog of war in combat, we are still disciplined. And that's right. 
proud part that we have, proud moments. We are the keepers of the ROE, as we call it, the keepers, the 15 keepers mm -hmm. of the rules of engagement to make sure that we keep in line the rules of engagement. And that was a prime example. Great, great story. Well, so that being said, I don't remember all the details of this, and so maybe I shouldn't bring it up, but after the war, wasn't there an example of this where it didn't work out so well with the Blackhawks? It didn't work out at all, and I knew those two guys as well. I was in their squadron six months prior. So just to summarize for the listener, if they've forgotten, a couple friendly helos were shot down. Absolutely, Blackhawks, and okay. it was a, a travesty, and it was a, it was a combination from A to Z on multiple steps. So mm -hmm. I'd literally just been flying in the same location six months prior. And just a few months prior to that, with those same individuals, we were flying in a Denai flight over Bosnia. And so back to the situation in Iraq where this happened, there were two ships flying out of uh, Inchilik, Turkey again. Okay. Uh, years later, uh -huh. uh, I was 93. There were multiple step issues with this. The first part was the intelligence handbook, which gave you a, a nice colored book of all the enemy aircraft. It included helicopters, which mm. is fantastic. Mm -hmm. What it did not include was any friendly aircraft that might be flying. The second piece of the puzzle is the air tasking order had all the list of every aircraft that's flying in the mission of that day. Right. It did not include other service. For instance, it was an Air Force air tasking order. It did not include any Army aircraft, and these were army helicopters. So the pilots went out and they took off with a handbook that didn't have any aircraft that were friendly. They had an air tasking order that didn't have any aircraft that were friendly for the army. army. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So they already had a predisposition that we're going out for what type of mission? It was a mission of no fly. So they had their mindset of nothing is supposed to fly except us right. or anything on this air tasking order. So we have a combination, a whole list. So that just starts the ball rolling of things that happen poorly. Mm -hmm. Now to include the helicopters are going through valleys. And so the AWACS we talked about before with the airborne early warning radar that gives us the awareness no matter 360 degrees, which is fantastic. Mm -hmm. They were losing contact. They actually had friendly returns, but didn't relay that verbally to the pilots. Uh -huh but it was intermittent. So there were a series of errors in this whole thing, but the bottom line is the pilots finally get to the point and they're the last chain of events and they individually go by the aircraft. And my advice to everybody that I tell the students in class about this is the first person that goes by to do a, a visual identification is don't say anything, just write it down in your notepad. Mm -hmm. The second guy goes by and he can say what he sees and he sees if it matches. If it right. does, you're probably onto something. So what happened is that instead of that, in this case, the first pilot says, I see a hind, which is a Russian made helicopter right. because that's what's in the book. There are no friendlies in the book of helicopters. Right. It's gotta be one of these enemies. Which one is it? Right. And that's what they did. They picked, well, it's not that one. It's gotta be that one. Second guy says, you said it's a hind. Sounds good to me. I that's think right. it's a hind. And so that's kind of the whole... conditioned him. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So the whole chain of events went that direction. So it's a, a multi-series of errors, but absolutely, yeah. that was horrendous. 24 friendlies killed. Yeah, yeah, awful. Yeah. Awful. No, I remember that. And I'm sure there were a lot of hard lessons learned that were 
disseminated from that. I know it was for us in the Navy, and you know we didn't really have a part in it. But from the outsider's perspective, like how can that happen? And it's interesting what you say there, Spidey, because it's it's not just one rogue person or bad call. It's a series of events, and it all as are most mishaps, frankly. Mindset, yeah. yeah. Well, goodness, we got to come back to something more positive than that before we wrap this up. But no, this has been a lot of fun, guys. I really do appreciate it. Spidey, I have some listener questions. Well, let's call it a lightning round, actually. That'll be easier. Ready? All right. So question from Mike Reed from Orange County, California. He says, what factors determine the deactivation or disestablishment of a squadron? I understand most of the time it is a budgetary slash financial decision, but how are specific squadrons selected For example, is it determined by something derogatory or is it arbitrary? Heritage of the squadron. In other words, the longer it's been around, the less likely it is to go away. The longer it's been around and the more successful the squadron is, the longer it will stay. So if you were to take and look at the squadrons that are currently flying fighters, they have extensive combat history, Mm -hmm. even going back to World War I. So the 27th Fighter Squadron at Langley, the Eagles. This is one of the very first squadrons, and they're still around today. So the lineage and heritage of the squadron really matters. So in other words, instead of retiring, if you will, to make it simple, a squadron like that, it might be better to pick one that was established for Korea or Vietnam. That's Exactly. So they're going to pick the Air Force historian (laughs) who works for the chief of staff of the Air Force, has a list and a packing order for which squadron gets activated or deactivated based upon what the history of the squadron is. Okay. Spidey, you had a, a hand in this at one well, point, Well, that's because right? uh, that's the active Contributes. duty mantra, which is fantastic. And I think that's the way it should be. In the National Guard, it's a little bit different because the National Guard, they're state-owned. So the, the senators, it's owned by the governor, but there's a Senate input on changes. And it's a, a manpower issue on how many individuals in that state are working in the National Guard. So that's part of it as well. So interestingly enough, a decade ago, the 110th Fighter Squadron at St. Louis, F-15s, were closed down from the 2005 decision to BRAC, Base Realignment and Closure. Right. That was one of the oldest, second oldest in the whole U.S. Uh, 1923, it was established. Charles Lindbergh was a member (laughs) flying the J-4 Jenny. Wow. So it had the history for sure. It also had the lowest cost per flying hour and the most experienced F-15 squadron on the planet. We had over 33,000 flying hours in the last 10 ship that we flew because the average of the, each pilot was 3,300 of the wow. last 10 ship that flew before we closed down. Uh, the maintenance schedule experience, we had cheapest everything. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't about cost. It wasn't about lineage. It was completely about politics. So... The other states, when we're looking at U.S. national BRAC, base realignment closure of bases being closed, then it was a battle between the senators on, hey, literally it's a puck shuffle. If I'm losing one squadron, then I need to gain another one. And so literally it came down to the general rule from the National Guard is every state will have a flying unit somewhere. Well, Montana lost their C-130s think there were no f-16s there were lots of f-16s at the time now there's flying c-130s there are lots of f-16s and then montana state would have no flying unit so that state now bartered for hey we have to have some flying unit somehow we Mm -hmm. have to pull from peter to pay paul kind of thing Mm -hmm. and so they go well missouri has two flying units let's just take one from them 
And they kind of forgot about the whole lineage thing. They forgot about the financial benefits because it was cheapest. <laughs> and the experience level, they forgot about all that stuff. And they just went 100% into politics. So okay. it kind of depends is the answer. And Mike, to your question from the Navy side, I honestly can't answer this because I was never involved. My only experience in this, and I was in VFA 86 in CAG 1 way back when, and we had Lot 10s. It was the earliest Charlie model they made. And our sister squadron, VFA 82, had Lot 18s, which was like the newest Charlie models. And then they ended up moving to Beaufort, South Carolina. And then sometime in the early 2000s, they decided to retire one of the squadrons. And if you just thought about the capability, you might think, oh, let's get rid of the one with the older jets. Well, they disestablished VFA 82, gave their jets to VFA 86, who then had the newer jets and had to repaint them. And now 86 still exists and they're a little more and 82 is in the history book. So i postulate that maybe someone at the Pentagon had at one point been in 86 and when someone came along and said, hey, one of these squadrons has to go. You know that's the case. It was a pet project. I don't know. It's got to be the case. That probably is. But Mike, I'm glad that Stretch and Spidey could give you a better answer from the Air Force and Air National Guard because for the Navy, I don't know. And I know a handful of Marine squadrons have gone away and I assume it's the same. It was designed to fly fast and at treetop level, carrying 24 nuclear weapons. Today, it bristles with smart bombs and guided missiles. The B-1 bomber, called the bone by those who fly and maintain it, is the most heavily armed bomber ever built. Sleek and powerful, the bone remains a mainstay of American air power 50 years after its first flight. Hey everyone, this is Ken Katz, Call Sign Primetime. And my book, The Supersonic Bone, A Development and Operational History of the B-1 Bomber, tells the true story of this magnificent airplane. In this book, you'll read stories told to me by those who were there and see lots of great photos of the bone. Anyone with an interest in modern military aircraft will enjoy reading The Supersonic Bone. Available through the usual online retailers and aviation booksellers. Pick up your copy today. All right. That wasn't so much lightning, but uh, we'll get through these. Fire Control Master Chief Doug Stazek says, did you have any input on your aircraft loadout based on the mission and your personal preferences? So if I may inject, I assume Doug means, let's say you guys are in Desert Storm and you're in that 12-ship wall. You know, Maybe that's a, not as good an example because you had AM, uh, at that time AIM-7 and, and AIM-9, but perhaps for air to surface, and I can address this at the end, is a little different, but did you guys have any input in, hey, no, I want this on my jet? We have very little input only because we have such a small inventory to select from. Okay. Uh, with the AMRAMs, there are still some old AMRAMs we're dealing with and some newer ones. So, of sure. course, we always ask for the newer ones. Of course. Really, the whole uh, debate or decision matrix of the mission commander or flight lead of that mission to come is, hey, what do we have for enemy state? What do we have for weapons on the base? Are we flying at night? Is there weather? What have we been experiencing the last couple of missions to determine really, do you have two heaters on board, four heaters on board, or one heater on board, mm -hmm. or no heaters on board and just go all AMRAMs? We have limited flexibility to go. Really, the, the extreme is we'll go four by four with four AMMs and four AM9s. Mm -hmm. Typical load is six AMRAMs and two AM9s, but plenty of times we go seven AMRAMs and one AM9, oh, wow. but we can do all AMRAMs as well. So again, all those factors come into play on, hey, what are the uh, 
electronic attack uh, experiences we've we've had. Uh, what are the defensive actions? Mm-hmm. How close do we have to get to the adversary to identify them to shoot? Uh, the closer we have to get, the more we'd like to keep the AIM-9 mic, uh, X now, AIM-9X, and shoot with the, the helmet. So kind of the environmental factors, the identification factors, and the uh, electronic attack factors, day and night weather, all go into play. So very limited changes compared to somebody who does multi-role yeah. uh, for our decision matrix. Combat, the KOC, issues an air tasking order. And it includes the standard combat load. There you go. SCL. And that was going to be my answer to the Master Chief as well, is on the ship, you're going to have the limited ability for the ordnance folks to get the weapons out of the magazine. And so I can't just roll in there and like, oh, no, I'd never carry that. I only carry this. It's going to be based on the threat. It's going to be based on the weather, all the mission planning factors, and how we plan to attack it. So if everyone else is carrying a GPS-guided weapon, I shouldn't be carrying a laser-guided weapon and vice versa. I think the short answer is, Doug, no. You have to basically play along, and whatever the play is being called by the coach, that's the route you run, and there you go. Well, there is a feedback loop, just, you know, so seven years in the air tasking order world in the air operations center is we would work with the squadrons and work with the men and women in the field to go, hey, is this working for you? Oh, sure. And they would give us feedback, go, hey, this is not, and here's why, and Mm -hmm. that's happening in Syria constantly on, hey, we're making changes to the air tasking order to match really what's better fit for what mission they're assigned. So there is a feedback loop. It's just not a short one. So it's not get to the jet, make decisions. That's right. You have to plan it a few days in advance. And that is particularly important for carrier-based aircraft because it depends on, look, if I intend to uh, employ all these weapons, fine. Yeah, I'll take as much as you want. But if I am going out on a contingency mission where I might bring it back, well, then that's a different story because I'll either be low on fuel or have to jettison some of these weapons. And so that's a concern as well. All right, final question from John Crystal Lake, Illinois. I was curious how specific fighters, aircraft, or branch of military are selected for a mission. Are there different jurisdictions? Is it based on aircraft available at the time of a mission? Why would a fighter off an aircraft carrier be chosen over a fighter from a base on land? So just to put this in context, you guys were both Desert Storm, right? So let's say they've been planning night one, day one, et cetera, for days. You've got, what, four carriers in the Gulf. You've got all these squadrons in Saudi and Al-UD and all these different places. Uh, Al-UD, is that right? Yeah, maybe back then. But anyway, and you were up in Turkey, Spidey. Somebody's going to get together and figure out who's going to do what. What is that process? Well, when you have all the assets that you have in the inventory, which uh-huh. we did in that right. case, because we had planned that, it makes it pretty easy for the planners in the air operations centers to put the pieces together because they know which aircraft is designed for which mission. Right. Just like a football team. Hey, who's the wide receiver? Who's the quarterback? Who's the tackle? Who? It's all already decided based on the mission capabilities of that specific aircraft. So putting together the missions in Desert Storm was actually like putting together a football team. It really was. We already knew the infantry was the F-15s we talked about. We already knew the defense against the surface-to-air missiles were the weasels at the time, the four weasels, because they shot the the harms at the missiles. We already knew that the electronic attack were the EF-111s. We already knew that the tankers were uh, the 135s. We had a couple of KC-10s. Uh, we already knew that the AWACS for the early warning radar was going to be designed to be out there as well as the J-STARS and the rivet joint for the surface threat. We had 
the air to ground players, multi role mm-hmm. uh, in the air uh, in the daytime, the F 16s, and then the nighttime, the F 111s uh, doing their, their bombing roles. Uh, we had some uh, E model strike eagles that were just starting to come on board in the Air Force at the time playing as well. And so, really, everyone was pieced, and I don't mention every single piece of the right. puzzle. But it was pretty simple for really the Air Operations Center to piece together who's supposed to do what role because everyone had their expertise and what they were supposed to do from the close air support to the uh, the PJs, the pararescue. Everyone was already assigned what they need to do. Break, break. Current affairs. Now we have this rotation going on in the Middle East and you'll kind of get a hodgepodge of what type of aircraft happen to be there, how many carriers, if any. Right. There's usually always one carrier, right. but what do they have? And they have a 12-hour on-off. Uh, so who's available on that particular hour aircraft-wise and type-wise? And so that's where it kind of gets a little convoluted in the Air, Air Operations Center because now we're doing some cross-missions, and that's where the multi-role comes into play. Mm-hmm. I go, okay, we, we know that F-16 is designed air-to-ground. However... We don't have any air-to-air players today at this time in this window. We need you to do uh, air defense, uh, DCA, defensive counter-air for this particular mission. So now we have a little cross-mix of navies pulling in to do some of that as well when the Air Force is supposed to, but they don't have the the number of aircraft. So when you have the kind of a minimum force from all the different services, that's where it gets very creative on who's doing what and how it's all integrated. And that's also why at the KOC or JOC or whatever it's going to be, combined or joint, is you have representatives from all the different units. So the carrier guys will send folks in. I did it. I spent three weeks on the beach and was like, no, we can't do 24-hour operation. Well, you can, but then you're going to need more time off. So, Or, hey, we can't carry this load unless you want us to employ it for the reasons we just talked about. So I would say a lot like almost anything. It's give and take. Uh, who's here? What can they do? What can they not do? And then you just figure it out to maximize. And, and to your point, it's fairly simple if you've got an F-15 squadron and a you know, UH-60 squadron. Well, guess what? They're going to do certain roles. But if you've got Navy F-18 squadrons and a Marine F-18 squadron on the shore, well, now they could theoretically do the same things. And so you've, you've got a little bit of give and take and you just have to figure out with the folks that are there representing and, and what the limitations are. Awesome. All right, guys. This has been a marathon discussion, but it's been really amazing. I've really enjoyed this. What have we not covered about the F-15 that the listener needs to know? I mean, I think we've hit a lot of it. We certainly didn't go into a lot of the systems necessarily, and that I usually don't, but we didn't talk about expendables. I assume you got a handful of chaff and flares. and Absolutely, chaff and flares. You guys started what? to do the decoys at all? We were doing those on the Hornet. No. No? no. Oh, I mean, the uh, sorry, the Toad. No, we do the opposite. We go in the contrails to make sure you see you it. Can see us. That's There's right. no yeah, decoy about it. Okay. So, no, I think we've talked about it all. I think still to me it's still mind-boggling, as Stretch pointed out. The way this plane was designed was so well thought out that it's not only survived for 45 years, but it's still dominant for 45 years. It still dominates the skies. That's amazing. So it's not something that just came and went and it's good for a decade. It's still viable. And in some areas, it's got some advantages over even some fifth gen, but very small areas, of course. I think as Stretch pointed out in the in the last discussion with the F-22 and the numbers we have, the fighter integration is critical. And when you get the F-15 doing its mission with the F-22, we support one another. And it used to be 
them just supporting us. And now we both call shaping. We will shape the battlefield for the F-22s now, Mm -hmm. and they will then in turn shape it for us. And we will so very smartly decide who should go in first to the next wave. And it may be the F-15s, it may be the F-22s. It's not always the same. And so that evolution is, to me, phenomenal to maximize our firepower uh, because we all have limited number of uh, weapons. Maximize the firepower and the fighter integration is the key to the current air defense and air dominance, both defense for the nation and offense. Is the F-35A start to factor into that calculus? Not really. I mean, we play a little bit with them, but their focus is against the high-digit SAMs. So they can do air-to-air and all that stuff, but that is not what they're designed to do. They're designed, and combined with us as a total force, it's amazing what they help us with Mm -hmm. to get past the high-digit SAMs that we can't get by on our own. Okay, so you're talking SA-20 type of thing? All those, yeah, double-digit, yeah. yeah. So the... Really, the air dominance fighter integration is is really strictly F-15C hmm. and F-22 because okay. both of us specialize in just air-to-air. Gotcha. Stretch, what else about the uh, F-15, bud? It's a turning machine. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so nice. it can take care of it at a distance, but uh, get the phone booth. I made happy on that one. Right. It's a turning machine. Outstanding. All right, guys. Well, uh, let's start to uh, transition then to the final part here. Spider-Man, you are here in Vegas with me tonight, but you're living in Phoenix. What's the future hold for you? Well, just retired just uh, a month ago. So it's From the Air Force? From or the Air National Force, Guard? Yeah, 30, yeah, 32 years uh, Air Force, uh, wow. Air National Guard, 30 years in the, in the Eagle. I dream about it every night. I really do. It's my blood. <laughs> Uh, but now on to new, brighter future. So moved down to Phoenix, uh, flying for American Airlines, starting a couple months with them. And then uh, the amazing Draken flying fighters still over in Ellis Ranges in Las yeah, Vegas with recruited? my buddy Stretch, will be He's my boss. Hired. <laughs> All right. Congratulations. Do you know what you're flying? Probably the L-39, the Honey Badger, but we're not. We're still working on that. <laughs> He's probably going to fly. I, I don't know. I'm advocating for him to fly the Cheetah, but uh, my boss says oh, it's going to be the L-159. We'll see. I'm, I'm working I'm on it. I'm proud to fly anything with these working on it. fighter <laughs> heroes, literally, that are the sparring partner of the Air Force. Okay. Awesome. Well, that sounds like good stuff. And uh, yeah, that's going to be a lot of fun for you. I'm jealous. Good stuff. Final question. Spider-Man. I mean, I don't see that in Brian Camp, so it's clearly not a play on names. There's some early junior officer shenanigans on the outside of an apartment building or what, what what's the story here all around the planet i'm a climber so tree climber <laughs> rock climber building climber oak club climber so it started a long time ago when all i was right. a little kid doing tree tags literally swinging from tree to tree like a little monkey like yeah. uh, my brother and i talked about so rock climber is the official because i actually have uh, harness ropes and do it safely now okay so uh rock climber is the is the official answer sir will you take that all right i will accept <laughs> that stretch you've known him a while anything to add i have the first (laughs) night at weapon school we go to the club i think i'm there with gomez king and uh we're sitting outside we look up and there's someone on the roof and we both look up and i go oh my gosh it's spider-man he's on the roof in a sombrero (laughs) yeah hopefully he's still uh, with your clothes on he's he's a climber absolutely he's a climber did you like escape out of your crib as a baby and stuff absolutely (laughs) every chance I've got a kid like that. He's, he's a, anyway. All right, guys, this has been a lot of fun. Uh, Stretch, I'll start with you. Any, uh, any final thoughts here? No, the Eagle, I was so blessed to fly that airplane for 20 years. 
I cannot say how much I enjoyed it. It took me to war. It brought me home. I am a huge Eagle fan mm. and will be to the day I die. All right. Well, that's a good send off as well, though. I will thank you uh, here for setting me up with Spider-Man. We just met tonight, but you were the one who put the connection together there. And I think you delivered, Spidey. Oh, thanks, Jello. And thanks, Stretch, for bringing me in this place. This is a lot <laughs> Absolutely. Of fun. A lot of fun. This was good. Cool. Spidey, any uh, parting shots from your point of view? No, it's great. Best job on the planet. So I'm very, very proud and very humbled to awesome. have the career I had. Thank you. All right, guys. Well, thanks very much for being here. And uh, with that, we'll. Thanks, Jello. Let's go. All right. All right. See ya. Max Speed. Okay, BS, as I listened to that interview again to prepare for recording with you today, I took a blank piece of paper and I formed two columns. I labeled one wow and the other more. Now, in the wow category, I wrote down the following figures. Spidey's over 4,000 flight hours in Eagles, the aircraft's 44 years of service, over 100 to zero kill ratio, and 14 Gs. Now, I recognize that that aircraft didn't do too well after that, but the fact that it landed, another one I didn't write down, but just remembered is the one that landed with out a wing. Yeah. What an aircraft. It's incredible. There was actually, while I was going through the TX, we had an incident where a guy was doing BFM. I think his G-suit came undone at some point in the flight airborne, mm. and he went to execute a brake turn and G-locked, and he was nose low, heading straight down, extremely fast. Came to, he rolled upright and just pulled for all he had and recovered the airplane. I don't think he pulled 14 Gs, but I want to say he was mid-13s. So I've seen a lot of these figures about the Eagle thrown around. And even I kind of was like, no way, you know, I don't think that's really, you know, I just didn't really believe it. And then I saw that with my eyes firsthand. And, you know, that airplane, the strength of that airplane saved his life. Thank God. Wow. Well, and it's amazing to me that he had already succumbed to G-forces, but then I imagine adrenaline kicked in a little bit and it was fight for survival at that point. Adrenaline kicked in and his flight lead just did an unbelievable job just getting him back, getting his brain cage back into the fight. And he saved his life, 100% saved his life. Wow, that's cool. In the more category on my blank piece of paper, I have several things I want to ask you about. Now, first, Spidey and Stretch were pretty complimentary about the Eagles' slow speed handling. And I would say that is one uh, advantage the F-18 has over most other aircraft. How would you compare the Eagle and the Hornet in slow speed handling? And have you done much dogfighting? I guess I should start by asking with your time so far. I have. I don't think there's anything better than a Hornet slow speed. Okay. Across the board. You can fight a Hornet sub hundred knots, fully in control, extremely tight turn radius, and really can point the nose wherever you want. And it's super comfortable. So I don't think any aircraft can quite do that as well as the Hornet can, but the Eagle for as big as it is, can maneuver extremely well, slow speed. And especially when I was starting out, you know, and didn't really know how to fly the thing right. Mm-hmm. I found myself slow speed quite a bit. So I had to figure out how to make this work for me because I just wasn't flying the airplane properly at the time. <laughs> but yeah, it, it flies great. Yeah, It's got a very good radius and you can pull the nose around pretty good. So if you and your Eagle and I and my Hornet are both pretty slow and then the opportunity presents itself to regain some knots, uh, again, you've dogfighted dog fought? I don't know. Anyway, you fought the F-18 a lot and you know what it takes to get some knots back. How would you compare the Eagle there? Does it get some knots back a little quicker? The Eagle's exceptionally better there yeah. than the Hornet okay. is. So you can get slow, but you can get fast in a hurry in the Eagle. Whereas okay. in the Hornet, it's going to take you some time, which right. means you're giving your op- your opponent time to mm-hmm. 
execute his game plan. What did you think of their assertion? And again, I don't mean to pit you against Spidey and Stretch, but just for a balanced view here, uh, what did you think of their assertion that the Eagle is, I think he said, quote, the best dogfighter on the planet? Yeah, I need to be careful with this one. <laughs> it's probably some people listening. Yeah, I, I think it's hard to argue with, I mean, what is it, 104 to zero? Yeah. That speaks for itself. That's right. Not all of those were dogfights, but... That's true. That's true. I think that one of the things that I think Top Gun does extremely well is they harp, and you know this better than anyone, they harp on it's always comes down to the man in the box. Mm -hmm. So modern fourth, fifth gen airplane, they're so capable, you know, whether you're flying a flanker, you're flying a Hornet, you're flying an Eagle, they're so capable that it's what it's going to come down to is the guy in the airplane fighting his airplane to the maximum extent, making the correct decisions at the correct time with the correct control inputs and cueing his weapons is ultimately who's going to win. So the airplane just so closely matched that it's tough to say one is better than the other. I fly the Eagle now, so the Eagle is the best. In case everyone's right. listening, <laughs> I would feel very confident going into most any situation in my current F-15C. But it's going to come down to who's flying their best jet that, on any given Sunday. You know, and that's an interesting point I don't think I'd ever really thought of until just now. Because let's say you and Spidey are going to go out and fight in both e- in Eagles. You know, with his experience, I think it's probably safe to say he's going to have the advantage. But then take you back a year and a half, two years ago to your peak in an F-18. And it might have been a whole different fight. And in that case, it's the same guy, but the different box. Sure. And in the other case, it's the same box with the two different guys. So anyway, getting uh, in a 1v0 here. But the point is, <laughs> to your point, is proficiency, recency, the aircraft, total experience, the weapons. I mean, just having a helmet and a high off foresight weapon is a whole game changer too. So It is. And it actually reminds me of kind of an interesting story. We're coming back from across country from Key West best place ever. <laughs> and we stopped in Dallas. We're doing some dogfights with the uh, F-16. Is this in your current capacity? No, this is in the Hornet. Okay. And the whole point of the story is we had two uh, fuel tanks. I think we actually had lightning targeting pods in oh, the gosh. belly. So, you know, mm-hmm. probably the worst configuration to turn with. <laughs> right. I ended up, the guy that I fought was a full board colonel, you know, thousands of hours in the Viper, in the Hornet, uh, not the Hornet, sorry, in the Raptor. He'd been there and done that. He was kind of, he was very cocky in the brief. I just kind of didn't say much and we just kind of figured it out and, you know, got on the same page and off we went. And I was like, I have basically one card I'm going to play here that if it goes well, it's going to go well for me and not going to go well for him. But if if I screw it up, I'm toast. Yeah. So we basically started about a mile. We turned in and and immediately just had the fights on and I got beneath them and just really aggressively kind of came from low to high, you know, the Hornet, I'm at 70 alpha, essentially just up and over the top. You know, he looked over his left shoulder and there I was in about a heartbeat. And he was in a slick Viper. So if you just looked at that airplane compared to what I was flying that day, you'd be like, oh, the Viper's going to win. He's got nothing hanging off his airplane. He's got just a humongous engine pushing all this thrust out the back. Mm -hmm. He's in this rusty old Hornet that's got all this (laughs) stuff hanging off. You know, this isn't going to go that well. But there it was. I was prepared and I had a good game plan and I executed it really well. And he wasn't too cocky after that first one. So, (laughs) All right. Awesome. A little humble pie always tastes good. I eat plenty of it. Sure. Same. All right. So did you or have you started learning how to fight differently? Have you had to relearn BFM in the F-15 or is it just a question of, obviously the principles are the same, but in an F-18 you might do something, whereas in an F-15 maybe you don't want to do that same thing? Yeah, that's a great question. Conceptually, it's about the same. So that's comforting. You know, a turn circle is a turn circle. Mm-hmm. You know, a break turn is a break turn. doesn't matter what, you know, if you have USMC or USAF or ANG painted on your airplane. But the Eagle is mecked very differently than the Hornet is. And for our listeners, the Hornet's really easy to fly. It's got a great flight control system that 
I think in a lot of cases can make up for maybe a little bit of sloppiness here or there from the pilot. Hmm. The Eagle has this kind of crazy hydromechanical setup. We have a cast system that kind of smooths it out a little bit, but it's very apparent the guys who are good sticks in the Eagle, really? Vice in the Hornet, because there's really nothing in the Eagle that's going to make up for those kind of errors, BFM errors, you know, pulling too hard, not being up in the throttle when you should be, stuff like that. So for me, it's not so much learning what I'm supposed to do, where I'm supposed to be. It was learning how do I get the Eagle to do that mm-hmm. and get it in a position that I need to be in at any given time. Whereas the Hornet, I was doing that, you know, almost unconsciously because I've done it so much. Right. So now I'm new to the Eagle. I don't know how to fly this thing. And I think one, one of the first BFM flights I had in the TX, I mean, I am not even kidding. I think my feet, both of my hands and my head were all moving in different directions. <laughs> and the jet was going in no, the absolute wrong direction, even though my extremities were moving every which way. Just I knew where to go. I just didn't know how to get the jet to do that yet. Yeah. So that's been a challenge. And I think a lot of other guys that are transitioning to the Eagle probably echo that. Well, you've had to relearn muscle memory. It's muscle memory. And we come back from the debrief and, you know, we're just spinning through tapes and guys are just laughing. You know, what are you doing? I'm like, I, dude, I don't know. Like, I know where I need to be, but I'm just trying to figure out how to get there. Yeah. I think that's a pretty steep learning curve. Yeah. To be honest with this, to this day, I'm still trying to get better at that every, you know, a little bit every single time I go out. Sure. Well, and speaking of that, if you get in a Toyota such and such model and a different model and they're both Toyotas, you can see some commonalities. At one point, these were both McDonnell Douglas products. Is there some carryover that's been comforting and familiar for you or are they totally different? There's a lot of carryover, which is okay. great. So the stick is the exact same, for example. Oh, wow. The buttons do kind of different things from different aircraft, but it's the same stick. It feels the exact same, uh, which is nice. The throttles are similar enough that that feels about right. Okay. And interestingly, the canopy bow, kind of where the front half of the windscreen mm-hmm. connects with the rest of the canopy, it's about in the same place in the Hornet uh, and the Eagle. So when you sit in both and you drop the canopy, it just feels right. right. For me, it did coming from the Hornet. It, mm-hmm. it felt about right. So that was kind of nice. Other than that, it's totally different. <laughs> the, right. the, uh, the cockpit, I said, in a Hornet is probably a lot cleaner than an Eagle. But once you get used to it and just change your scan, it's all the same. How much better is the Eagle's detection and ID capability compared to the Hornet? And obviously, we're not looking for insider information here. But that was one thing I think we struggled with in the F-18 community, at least early on. Mm-hmm. Eagle guys always seem to have an advantage. Is it pretty eye-watering? Or- it is. It's significant, especially compared to a Hornet. When you think about it, that's what the airplane was designed to do, right? Mm-hmm. Specifically, Hornet kind of was supposed to do that, but really different mission, right? Self-force escort strike off the boat, close air support. And if we could kind of have some capability to do that, great, but not a huge deal on the Hornet if you don't. Eagle World, I mean, that's our bread and butter. We have to have that and it has to work and give us the information we need when we need it. Yeah. So that's been nice, especially from a Hornet guy. I'm not used to that. And I'm, <laughs> you know, I'm not used to seeing anything until certain ranges. And all of a sudden you have all this SA and you're like, wow, this is pretty wide. Uh, nice. Very nice. Okay, good. How high and fast have you had one? Ooh. Um, <laughs> Any personal records? <laughs> pretty high. Pretty high and pretty fast, actually. <laughs> I don't I don't, can't remember if it was Stretch or Spidey had a pretty good story about that, but I don't think I got quite that high. But okay. the jet will comfortably fly into the 40s, which is in a Hornet, I mean, mid-30s. Effort, yeah. It takes a lot of effort to get that high. And it does in an Eagle as well, but you know, you'll look out and you'll see 47, 48,000 and the jet is really comfortable up that, yeah. up that high. So. And you look at your mock, how fast you're going. You know, there's no air up there, so you're just screaming down range. <laughs> and you can get behind the jet in a hurry. Yeah, I'm yeah. sure. Have you been up to 9Gs, I'm guessing? Yeah, pretty close. Um, nine's the limit, so we try not to right. obviously break that. But I think Spidey actually said it's really easy to over-G an Eagle. Yeah. The Hornet, it's really tough. Right. The jet, the computers in the jet just won't let you do it. Mm-hmm. it everyone's done it a couple times probably oh, yeah. through their career. But I mean, guys with thousands of hours over G and Eagle. And I've done it. One of the squadron commanders, I was kind of bummed out. I over G on this BFM flight and I was frustrated because I had a good game plan going in the day. And 
there I was. I over GD again on like the second set. And I'm, I'm like, all right, well, clearly my game plan wasn't working. And uh, so we sat down afterwards. He's giving me all these techniques. We had a great chat over beer and, and I felt great going to the next flight. And then two days later, he over GD himself. <laughs> And he's like, don't listen to anything I just told you because I just overdue. Yeah. <laughs> so, and, and he's an a, yeah. amazing pilot. Sometimes it just happens and it's yeah. super easy in an eagle. Just for the record, uh, I know you know this, but I'll tell you that your uh, story was you had a beer and then went out the next day. That's right. That's right. Flight. Okay. That's right. It was after the flight and we were done for the <laughs> yes, day. Of course. That's right. But just for anyone who might uh, be concerned, do you miss uh, air to ground? I do. Yeah. yeah. It's a little bittersweet, to be honest. Like it's there's nothing better than working with the guys on the ground mm. and making their day better with some help from above, right? So yeah. that was just whenever we went overseas and did that was just the best. I mean, because for us, especially as Marines, I mean that's why we have jets. Bottom line, yeah, we BFM on the weekends because it's fun and we love to do it. We're fighter pilots, but we have F-18s because there's kids overseas that need bad people to go away right now, and we're the ones that can do it. So that was great. Yeah. But on the other hand, in the Eagle community or in the C model, at least. We only have about, if you boil it down, three missions, essentially. And it's nice to be able just to focus on yeah. those missions, like offensive counter We're escorting a strike package. Defensive counter you know, we're defending something behind us, a boat or a piece of land or something like that. And then, you know, BFM, ACM, within visual arena, kind of dogfighting stuff. Yeah. So because we don't have the air to ground component, it's kind of nice to really dive into those three kind of disciplines. And you get really good at it quickly because that's yeah. all you have to do. That's yeah. all the jet can physically do. Although we do practice air to ground strafe. We do actually, you know, point the nose at the dirt and squeeze the trigger just like you wouldn't horn it. But in the C model, that's all we do air to ground wise. So, well, and also I think there's a personal satisfaction. I'm sure you had this also of dropping a Mark 76, 25 pound practice bomb from a several thousand feet up and having it hit where you aim. I mean, that's just instant feedback and it's fun. It's a lot of fun. And especially, with, you know, good weather, daytime, yeah. and you can you just really get in the groove and um, you really challenge yourself. And we set up some side bets with the guys in the flight and we'll tally that's it up right. afterwards. And it's just, it's just good fun. <laughs> yeah. For sure. You probably don't miss, uh, speaking of night, any kind of carrier stuff. All your landings now are pretty uneventful, I'm sure. That's right. Okay. All right. So we had listener questions that we posed to Spidey and Stretch. I want to repose them to you just a little bit. Do Marines have any say in their loadouts uh, ashore, let's say? I don't remember. You told us all your background, but I didn't go back and listen to episode 25 if you were ever forward deployed, not on the boat. But Master Chief Stazak was asking about that. Do you know for your ground-based Marine brothers, do they get any personal say in anything like that? Or is it still just the standard loadouts? Yeah, we do. I was forward deployed twice off the boat. It's a two-way street, right? So the guys who are kind of running the whole air show will tell you, you know, what they think their best guess is based on what you need to, what targets or whatever you need to do that night. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, if that wasn't good enough, or we thought there was a better idea, we'll just kind of close the loop and say, Hey, that was fine. But let's, what about this option? Or maybe two bombs and a missile or whatever the case may be. So it's a constant feedback loop. I think we were doing that the entire time wow. we were over there. Cause you know, the guys that are making the decisions, they're not overhead that night, you know, employing ordinance. So, you know, we're the subject matter experts. We understand what effects need to happen mm -hmm. and maybe what they wanted us to bring was a great guess or just a great, you know, first step, but Hey, let's go the next step and tweak it a little bit and give them exactly what they need. Well, plus you can bring it back if you don't expend it. Unlike exactly. If I'm offshore from you, then I've got to think about recovering on the ship. Exactly. How about Mike's question about squadron disestablishment or deactivation? Did you deal with that at all in the Marine Corps? I didn't personally deal okay. with it. Before I went over to the training squadron, I was in the Black Knights who just recently transitioned to the F-35C mm -hmm. up at Miramar. So the squadron did. I was gone by that point. But it's been an interesting time in Marine aviation to see that happening because I, I think and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think we do it a little bit differently than Navy does, whereas the Navy, I would assume kind of the whole squadron transitions more or less at once. 
-hmm. the Marine Corps, we don't really do it that way. It was their natural time to leave the squadron and do other stuff. So they left just like it was mine. And I left and went to 101. But the guys that were in the squadron all just didn't pick up and go up to Lemoore for a couple months and then come back. And it was F-35. There was, there was multiple boards and kind of selection processes. They brought guys in from other F-35 squadrons for obvious reasons, you know, for the experience and the continuity. I'm not sure how many guys they have now, but I think they're kind of still fleshing out a little bit. So they've transitioned. I think there's another squadron, the Vikings, I want to say, up in Miramar have gone. Yeah. So you're talking about transition. I think Mike's question was technically deactivation, like when a squadron goes away. But to your point, I was never in a Navy squadron that did that. But yes, they will take the whole squadron. They'll basically stand down for a while, go sit through class as a squadron and learn the new systems, just like if you were going through individually in the training command. And then you will get the jets over, the maintainers will learn all about them. And then you start going through like a safer flight and those various things. We had a two-seat squadron very early on in my career that got deactivated. I think it was 121, I believe, the Green Knights. I wasn't involved in that squadron, but it's interesting to see the follow. Like it was a kind of a sudden deactivation. So there was, oh, really? there was guys were, that were a little bit upset over that. And it's kind of tough in your career because now you're just kind of scrambling to figure out something else, what you're right. going to do. And 121, I think ended up being the first Marine F-35 squadron. Oh, so they were resurrected? It happened a lot years before that transition happened, but I don't know. We only have like eight Marine squadrons currently, so I don't think we can afford to actually just totally deactivate right. and go away. So Yeah, for sure. How about John's question about how certain branches and even aircraft are chosen for various missions? Again, we talked with Spidey and Stretch about the ATO and who's there and what they excel at. But back to your point, let's say you were on the beach. uh, I don't know where you were in the Gulf, but if I were offshore on the carrier and you were ashore, is it still just plain old ATO for them calling up you guys versus us? Or is there still some specialty there among F-18 squadrons, Navy and Marine? Yeah, it's that's actually a really good question. I think the official answer would be, you know, you just look at what the airplane's capabilities are mm-hmm. and you kind of match that with what you need to happen mission-wise. Right. But there's a whole kind of political side to it as well that, you know, because an F-18 off the boat can more or less do the same thing as what we could do. We could carry a little bit more ordnance just because we were land-based, right. but it's almost the same aircraft. They can do the same thing. So why would you choose one over the other? And then it's it comes down to, well, Jello was, he's on the ground with the Marines and he was my roommate in flight school. And oh, by the way, I just sent him an email that, hey, like, we're ready to go. Like, tag us in, coach. This and is you at the KOC, right? Or something? I'm in my unit. Say, you, say yeah, you're yeah, at yeah. the KOC. Okay, right. You know, hey, Jell, it's BS. We're in country. Like, let's do this. You're going to make the right choice. You're not going to make a personal choice. You're going to no, make the right correct. but if it's one or the other. Yeah, but if it comes down to it, you know, I'm going to call BS and his Hornet guys yeah. because we have that relationship built already. Yeah. And I don't mean to say that guys are going to choose one over the other based on who they know. It, it, that's not the case. It, right. it's, they're going to put the right airplane in the right situation every time. But when it comes down to a toss-up, that happens quite a bit. Yeah. It reminds me of Chip Burke's uh, episode on Anglico, where it helps when you do know the folks, especially in his case, if you're the guy on the ground. It does. Is a, a familiar voice and you know what they've been through and their training, et cetera. So, all right, man. Well, that was uh, really amazing. What a long episode. That's why we are splitting this into two. Hope everyone doesn't mind that little wait in between parts, but gosh, BS. I mean, as I always say, we could go on and on. Uh, Any other thoughts on the F-15 from your point of view? I mean, again, relatively limited experience, but you're not a new pilot. So uh, I think we covered it pretty well. No, I think we covered most everything, Jello. I had very high expectations for the Eagle. And when I made the decision to kind of fly something else, there's a lot of stuff out there I probably could have gotten into. But I ultimately chose the Eagle, and I'm so happy I did that because this airplane, and really the community more than anything, the guys that fly it, the guys that take care of it, and, and the gals that fly it and take care of it as well, 
there's so much pride in the Eagle community that it's unbelievable to go to work and see that, which is great. Yeah. And the Eagle by far surpassed all my expectations by a long shot. Uh, I get in the thing and, and I'm just like, this is exactly where I need to be. And I absolutely love it. That's cool. Well, that's as good a testimony as any. And with that, we can begin to wrap this up. As always, we want to remind the listeners that the views expressed in this presentation are the personal views of the hosts and our guests and do not necessarily represent the position of the Department of Defense or its components. B.S., thanks so much for taking time to return to the show and lend us your thoughts on the interview and the F-15 Eagle. My pleasure, Joe. Thanks for having me back. Uh, You're welcome. As for everyone else, we'll see you back here in about 10 days for the conclusion of F-15 month with an in-depth look at the F-15E Strike Eagle with an Air Force pilot and Wizzo crew. We'll see you then. You've been listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, brought to you by BVR Productions. Got a question for the show? Send an email to questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com or leave us a message on our listener line at 877-MACH-101. That's 877-622-4101. Be sure to check out our website at fighterpilotpodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. For exclusive Fighter Pilot Podcast content, check out our Patreon page. Please like, follow, and subscribe to the show. And don't forget to share us with your network. Thank you for listening. Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow-ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.